For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that. And I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your hot takes, your observations, your questions, and ultimately your comments about tennis or anything else. I posted in the YouTube community tab about 24 hours ago, and I'm excited to get to your comments. As always, we are midway through the Canada Masters. Men are in Toronto, women are in Montreal. And on that note, before I get to the questions, I do want to follow up on my preview, which I posted after the first round matches late last night. It is already aging poorly because I said in the preview that I thought the seeds would do a little bit better this year and that there would be less upsets. Wednesday did not play out that way. Wednesday did not. I still think that'll be the overall trend of the North American hardcourt swing. I think we'll see more consistency from the top players compared to what we saw last year. I still believe that to be true. Uh, but I do think there are also some extenuating circumstances when it comes to Canada that maybe I overlooked. And it's it's a little bit different for, for different guys, but you have a lot of players playing their first matches on hardcourt in a while. Uh, you have a lot of guys coming off of rest periods. In in Tsitsipas's case, you know, first match after a title, at first match after winning a title, can be dangerous sometimes. I didn't think it'd be that big a deal. They weren't. It wasn't. You know, all that physical. It wasn't transcontinental travel. Uh, it's you know similar time zone, I believe. Whatever. All right. It was a listless performance against Gael Monfils. Straight set loss. I was not impressed with Steph. I didn't see Rublev, but he also lost to Mackie McDonald in straight sets. Uh, Zverev managed just three games against Alejandro Davidovich Fikina. And it's not just the players who lost. Carlos Alcaraz, my pick to win it, played his worst level that I've seen in a long, long time. Still played a smart match and did some things fairly impressively. Beat Ben Shelton in straight sets. But he was not comfortable at all. Timing, not good. Not good at all. So... That's been interesting to see. These top seeds, they get a buy. They're playing guys who just want to match. It's a small draw, so everyone they're playing is good. 
And I just think in this format, that first match with some kind of unique calendar spot stuff going on in terms of being the first big tournament after Wimbledon and for some being the first hardcourt tournament in a really, really long time, that combined with the buy, combined with the draw size, I think it, it makes those first matches dangerous. Now, I get it. Sometimes upsets happen. We don't need to rationalize everything. We don't need to overanalyze everything. Sometimes there can just be upsets, and it's because everybody's a really good player and can win. Uh, I get that. But if you're just looking at patterns, it looks like the pattern of Canada being a little bit dangerous for top seeds is continuing, contrary to what I believed would happen. And those are some reasons why that might be. Let's get to the first question. It is from Common Sense Media. Looking back, do you think there was ever a possibility for Djokovic to reach 30 Grand Slam titles? Would that number be virtually untouchable for any player ever to catch? Taking into consideration most absolute greats peak at around 20 to 24, or was it ever a realistic goal? On that note, considering Djokovic's current standing in the sport, how many Grand Slam titles do you believe he can realistically win? Well, here's what you got to kind of understand. The only reason we're like the best players, the greatest of the greatest of the greats, they win a little more than 20. The only reason we think that way is because of what has happened in our previous slash current era, the big three era, where all of them are ending up at a, however you want to put it, most likely a pretty similar number, pretty close in the grand scheme of things. Before that, when Pete Sampras won his 14th, that was thought to be pretty much as well as you can do. The game has changed. Circumstances have changed. I'm trying to hammer this home. I'm trying to say this as much as possible because I, I believe in it really strongly. There are reasons why Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic did what they did and that nobody before them in decades and decades and decades of tennis, not one, not one player was able to do it and then three did it at the same time. There is a reason for that. And it has to do with surface homogenization, play style homogenization, increased athletic longevity. Those three things. Now, if you take those things, and I'm not saying it's going to continue that way forever and ever and ever, but if you take those things and you take away some of the competition, right, because they all had to compete with each other and they are all great players in their own rights, then you can convince me that somebody can win 30 majors. You can convince me of that. Was it ever a possibility for Djokovic to do that? I think his rivals were just a little bit too good. And there were, you know, there were three of them who were who were really, really very good. Two of them better than Murray, but three of them who were very, very good. So that's why I don't think it was possible for Novak to do it. But somebody can do it. I'm just saying, somebody can do it. I'm not going to answer the, the Djokovic question. Uh, I just don't. I don't feel like I have anything intelligent to uh, to add in that answer of how many slams Djokovic will end up with. Let's go to the next one. 
from Hardy Har. Hey Gil, I'm wondering if you have thoughts on what happened to Cam Norrie's season. He had such a promising start with wins over Fritz in the Dahl at United Cup, back-to-back -back finals in the Golden Swing with a win over Alcaraz for the Rio title, and then an Indian Wells quarterfinal. Since then, he's played 11 tournaments and only gone past the round of 16 twice. Lyon semifinal, Queens Club quarterfinal. It felt like he was poised for the best season of his career, especially as one of the few players who has proven capable of giving Alcaraz a hard time. But now he feels like a complete non-factor. What went so wrong? Yeah, it is surprising how sharply his season has turned around. I, I don't know if you... Did you include in your comment that he he also made the Auckland final? I mean, I know that's not the most competitive of tournaments, but that was also in January. So uh, great at United Cup, makes the Auckland final. Australian Open, he uh, lost to Yuri Lehechka in the third round. But then he had a great golden swing. I thought that great golden swing was at the very least going to lead to a positive clay court swing. That did not happen. I was front row for the match where this whole thing turned around, which was against Gregoire Barrere in Miami. I think it's in the Miami Open vlog. Ever since he lost in the first round of Miami to Gregoire Barrere, 6-3, 6-2, where uh, I was pretty blown away by Barrere, but it also seemed like Nori had an ankle issue in that match or a foot issue of the sort. It has just not been the same. Do I have a very confident theory on what's happened here? The answer is no. I don't, unfortunately. From 420 Benton, FAA has had a really poor season. Why hasn't he kicked on from last year? There have been various points this year where I've talked about Felix in the mailbag. I'm trying to keep it fresh. I'm trying to not keep you know harping on the same things over and over again. There's a lot of different directions I can take this because there's a lot of different things that have gone wrong. You know, ultimately I was concerned for Felix coming back from the injury because I I think that confidence-wise he can be a little bit fragile, a little bit frail. And when you come off of an injury and then you lose a bunch of matches, tennis has this horrible, horrific, positive feedback loop. And we saw Felix get in that positive feedback loop when it comes to losing finals, where, oh, once you're 0-3, it's harder to lose the fourth, uh, harder to win the fourth. Once you're 0-4, it's harder to win the fifth. Once you're 0-5, it's harder to win the sixth. And it goes on and on and on. And, you know, he's he's in this rut here. He hasn't won a match in ages. And the longer this goes on, the worse it gets. Felix is a little bit prone to this. You know, he is a player who has some spectacular strengths. He needs those strengths to smooth over his flaws. Against Purcell here in Toronto... Uh, he did not, his first serve was not all that good. And the rest of his game is not is not doing enough. Purcell, by the way, I think a little bit underrated right now. I, you know, he's playing some very good, tricky baseline tennis that uh, is pretty uncomfortable, I think. Felix is not playing well enough in other areas to make up for, uh, to, to win a match if his first serve is not, Good.
So it's kind of what happened uh, today. The, you know, he, he's not winning baseline rallies. You can hit second serve to his backhand and he's not returning well at all. When it comes to the first serve return, you can go to either wing and he's not returning all that well. He's not moving as well as he was last year. You know, part of that maybe is residual from the knee injury. I mean, nothing's going right right now. Uh, he he'll he'll figure it out eventually, you know, but he might need it's it's just a matter of how long does he need. Next one from I'm not gonna try to read the username. Hi Gil, thoughts on Raonic versus Tiafo if you had a chance to watch that. He hit 37 aces, just one shy of his record in a three-set match. What is it about his serve in the larger context of his playstyle that sets him apart from the other big servers? Well, I'm not quite sure what you're asking because I don't know what sets him apart from the other big servers. Like why why is he better than some of the other big servers? Like, why does he win more? He's got more, you know, he's got the big forehand to threaten behind it. And he's very good at protecting his backhand because he has, he has an excellent slice and he doesn't have a drive backhand. That's so bad that you can just approach it, right? It's not like a Karlovich situation where he can't pass you. He moves a lot better than Isner. If you want to compare him to Isner. Opelka, you know, his forehand is much better. His serve is better than Kevin Anderson's. So I, I don't know who we're... If we're talking about what sets him apart, I'm not really sure, like... I don't know if I answered your question there with, with, with that or not. But I'll tell you this, like the serve doesn't go away. You think about players who have aged really gracefully or at least been able to play for a very long time. John Isner and Ivo Karlovich, uh, Feliciano Lopez to a certain extent, uh, Gilles Mueller even. A lot of these guys are uh, have been able to play a, a really, really long time because your serve doesn't get worse with age for the most part. Uh, there are some exceptions. Andy Roddick towards the end of his career, like his his shoulder was just done and uh, his serve started to get a lot slower. But for a lot of for a lot of players, that's not the case and that they can actually keep up their serving level. And that's why when I was asked a couple, you know, really, I guess now several weeks ago about, you know, Nishikori and Raonic coming back and Kevin Anderson coming back, Raonic is the guy who I, I feel the best about. Um, another kind of tidbit that I want to offer on this is uh, Milos is one of the few really, really big servers who hits a uh, platform serve. And I don't really have a point beyond that. I do think sometimes platform serves are a little bit more difficult to read, but I I'm not rock solid on that. It's not something that I would, I would, you know, say with a thousand percent conviction. But think about, think about everyone. Isner, Opelka, Karlovich, uh, all the tall guys, right? Uh, but even like Kyrgios, Berrettini, 
Everybody's pinpoint. The big, tall, big servers, all of them. Raonic is the only guy who's platform. Usually the shorter guys are platform. One more thing on the Tiafo match. Francis is one of the easiest guys on tour. One of the easiest top players to ace. He gets aced a lot. Remember, Kyrgios played him in Washington last year. That was another match where it was like Tiafo against a great server. He's going to get aced a lot because he just... He stands right on top of the baseline. He's not as long as like Djokovic or Sinner, so the reach isn't quite there. And he just gets aced a lot. So there's that. Next one is for Max Sturman. Question on Medvedev longevity. Hi, Gil. I was a bit surprised by your view that Medvedev may only have three to five good years left, so until he is 30 to 32, because he plays defensively behind the baseline. While it is true that he is predominantly a defensive baseliner, he wins a large percentage of his points in less than four shots. For that reason, I'm actually pretty optimistic about his chances to still be elite past 30-32. Well, he wins, I guess, a large percent of his serve points in under four shots. I mean, he's certainly... Like, his return games get very, very physical on a consistent basis. To clarify, though, on what I said about Medvedev longevity, I, I'm not sure that I'm... I'm not predicting Daniil to only have three to five good years left. And I've always said that I hate predicting longevity. I don't like to do it because I, I think it's kind of a fool's errand. What I did say is that we have never seen a player like Daniil Medvedev. And I think for that reason... It's fair to ask some questions about it. Uh, a six foot six guy who's moving and defending that much is completely unprecedented. Completely. So, you know, is that going to be conducive to maintaining? An elite level in the mid-30s? Not sure. I think it's fair to ask the question. Like in the NBA, we've seen it very clearly. Tall guys get hurt more. Tall guys have shorter careers. Next one is from Racket Talk, who is a member. Appreciate that. Hey, Gil. Do you think it is fair to say that Carlos and Novak are in Tier 1, but Medi is in a tier between them and in Tier 3? Oh, wait. No. Sorry. But Medi is in a tier between them and tier three. Got it. So you're saying that Medvedev has his own tier. I get it. I think Medvedev is not as good as those two, but seems to be mentally and results-wise just better overall than everybody else. Also, there's been a lot of talk about whether he can make the court position adjustments on his return that he needs to be competitive against tier one players. From the eye test, I think it might be easier for him to make that adjustment on his backhand return, but I feel like his take back is too long for it to work on the forehand return. How could he make the forehand return adjustment without getting rushed? And what are your overall thoughts? I agree with both parts of this comment. I agree that he is definitely kind of in tier two by himself on on certainly on hardcore. With Daniil, it's this has always been kind of a, a more difficult exercise um than it is for for some other players. Um 
because of the surface difference, right? And that's just been a reality about, you know, putting Daniil in tears. It's been harder. As far as the return position adjustment, well, what happened against Alcaraz when he moved up is Alcaraz hit body serves to the forehand. And Medvedev just looked completely jammed up and out of sorts trying to deal with that. So I definitely agree that it's the forehand with the bigger take back that is probably a little bit uh, tougher for, for Daniil when it comes to just shortening shortening up all the technique to make that kind of traditional return. I wonder if he can work on blocking though, right? I know we don't think of Daniil as a, a slice player necessarily, but he does have really good hands and great racket talent. And maybe another thing to experiment with is moving up and trying to chip. The argument against that is, would you still run into problems against the serve and volley if you're blocking your returns? And, and you know, that that's a question, but I think it's something to, to play around with. Another one from member Medezio. Do you think that since Rude took his offseason after the Australian Open, he will be in better physical condition than other players? Also, you talked about the U.S. Open being more random because of being late in the season. But Nadal, a player that is known for struggling physically, especially in hard courts, won four U.S. Opens and only two Australian Opens. Do you think that it's only luck or there's something in particular that's going on? As far as the rude question is concerned, I could see Casper being a little bit fresher and a little bit more intense over the course of the indoor hardcore season, honestly, just because he feels like he's making up for lost time. He didn't play a lot of tennis in the first really, you know, four months of the season, not only because of his February break, but also because he suffered a lot of early defeats after that February break. So I, I think that could play into the way the rest of Kasparud's season plays out. When it comes to Nadal, the bizarre thing about Rafa is his history of injury at the Australian Open has been brutal. It's been awful. He's been injured constantly in Australia. And I don't have an explanation for that. It's always been weird to me. But that's one of the big reasons why he does have four U.S. Opens and only two Australian Opens. There also was a period in in the U.S. Open, you know, history where where the courts were very, very slow. But I, it might have only been 2017 when, like, let me just kind of look at look at this here so that I can try to jog my memory. I don't. It might have been only 2017 where Rafa actually had that that kind of slow era U.S. Open title. Oh well, 2019 for sure. And then I think starting I think starting in 2021, the courts were much, much faster. If not 2021, then 2020. It's hard for me to remember. Might have been 2020. 
But uh, yeah, I think in this period from 2017 to, to like through 2019, the courts got really, really slow. Nadal won two U.S. Opens there. Although I, I don't think a fast hard court is necessarily bad for Nadal. I just think he needs he needs the court to have some bounce. That's the important thing for Rafa. All right, I'll answer one more. Want to want to choose one? There's one about team. I'll talk about team at some point later. I don't want to do that right now. Let's let's go to this one. This one's from uh, Mohawk. Hey Gil, do you think the two first serve strategy that Kyrgios, Bublik, and Cressy sometimes use is more effective for the modern game? Why aren't more pro players doing this? I would assume that most can hit two first serves 90% of the time. It seems like a great way to shorten points on occasion, and the benefits outweigh the risks in my mind. Thanks for the great insights over the years. You know, I just remembered that I think I talked about this recently when it comes to Cressy, and there is a, a, a pretty simple algorithm that you can create that tries to determine if it's better for players to do this based on their first serve in percentage, their first serve win percentage, and the same stats for second serve. But ultimately, the reason why I think players have trouble doing this is you need to, you need to, it, it feels worse. It takes a mental toll double faulting. And that mental toll is not the same as making your second serve and losing the point. It's just not. Even though the result is the same. You lose a point, you lose a point. What the hell's the difference? Zero. Zero difference. But because of that mental toll, because you feel like you did something worse when you double fault versus if you just lose a point, I think it is very difficult for that psychology to be to be overcome and for a player to to get in a mindset where they are okay with double faulting as much as hitting two first serves kind of forces you to double fault. And I think that's why we just really don't see it all that often. I think some players should do it. I think Cressy should do it, you know. Uh he he can't hit a second serve and stay back in the baseline. That's a terrible idea. Bublik, sure. Uh, Kyrgios, because of how good his first serve is, yeah, I, I'm kind of a fan of it with, with Kyrgios as well. Uh, but those three players, they they do do it. So you kind of pick the three players who do do it. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to kind of think about players who don't do it, who, who maybe should. And I can't do that off the top of my head just thinking about it for the first time. Uh, but that's that's something that maybe at some point we'll think about. All right. This has been fun. Uh, enjoy the continuation of the Toronto Masters and excited to bring uh, more content in regards to that. Hope you enjoyed this one. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. Yeah. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.